Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, I'm Steph. And I'm Simon. And welcome to The Food Fight where we offer a different perspective on food culture issues around Australia and the world. We'll talk with chefs, producers, business owners and experts to hear their stories and find out what makes them tick. This episode we chat with Rushani Epper from Culinary Magazine and Time Out Melbourne about food and culture and about amplifying diverse voices in food and food media. All right, welcome to another episode of the Food Fight Podcast. My name is Steph Postuma. I'm your host. Alongside my co-host, as always, Simon Evans. Hello. Uh, to begin this podcast, we'd like to do an acknowledgement of country. Here where we are, we'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather and speak today, and pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. Let's introduce our guest. Thank you so much for joining me. We're here with Rushani Ipa. Thank you so much for being Thank here. You. It's great to, great to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I know, yeah. Um, so are we. And you're doing some amazing things in the world of food media, which like there's so much stuff that we want to get into. Um, this conversation will be pretty heavily focused around culture and diversity. And I think a good way to start is for you to tell us a bit about yourself and your background and um, how that influenced, you know, developing a love for food. Yeah, great. Um, I've got a lot to say. Yeah, go for <laughs> it. Let's go. <laughs> Where do I start? Um, I suppose maybe I'll start from the very start of my journey, I suppose. Um, so I am a Sri Lankan Australian, um, second generation. So my parents were born in Sri Lanka and migrated here in the 80s. Um, that's definitely really heavily influenced the person I am today. Um, I think, and that makes me a person of color. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess that's where it all started from. Um, I studied journalism as well, um, purely because I was also always really interested in race and, um, issues pertaining to race and always asking questions from my family and whatnot about things like that. Um, and then I guess that's what, led me towards food journalism is growing up with so much amazing food um i don't know if you know too much about sri lankan culture but we love eating Mm. and we eat like from morning to night (laughs) constantly just eating and talking and coming together over a communal table um people popping in you know the house for a cup of tea and it's a very communal kind of culture um and so i've grown up with like heaps of great food um but there was at one point in my life when like during my childhood i'd say i think 
being the kid that would take like a thermos full of curry and rice to school, um, I would, you know, get bullied for that because kids would be like, oh, what's that smell? What are you yeah, eating? Right. And, you know, because um, I wasn't taking a Vegemite sandwich. <laughs> yeah. um, and so that definitely shaped the person I am today because I grew up, you know, going home to a very Sri Lankan household where my mother would say, why are you speaking in that accent? like referring to my Australian accent yeah, right. and saying you have to speak in your Sri Lankan accent. So I would even switch up my accent at home. Wow. Um, and then, you know, leaving the house to a, a very, you know, Australian culture. Mm, yeah. um, so definitely balancing. It was a balancing act. Mm. Um, and I guess that, yeah, that shaped the person I am today because I, I know who I am now. I've shaped my identity, whereas before I was still figuring it all out. Mm. Um, and I see a lot of other, you know, First Nations, black or people of colour um, in a similar situation and younger people that's still figuring it out. Um, and I think that's why I'm, I'm really passionate about doing what I do because I want people to feel comfortable in who they are um, and own it, you know, mm. and own our culture and, and represent your culture however you want to, um, but be proud of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's why I am focusing on the things I am today and why I bring race into food media. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers Yeah, no, that definitely like really does. Um, <laughs> how... When you when you were studying journalism, mm. at what at what point did you decide, or or what maybe opportunity arose where food media was the place where you would, uh, you know, be able to discuss some of these issues that you're talking about, and um, you know, use your experience as a part of your professional career because you could have done that just as a journalist or as a feature yes. writer or something like that, yeah. but you went into food. It actually didn't happen for me during uni, funnily enough. Right. Um, it happened way after, like in, in more recent years actually, um, and I'm 28 now, um, or turning 28. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it didn't happen for me during uni. I think during uni I was still figuring it all out and figuring out my identity still at that point. Um yeah, so it happened for me later on and I think I've just always been quite interested in food but I never saw food media as a viable career option and I think maybe that was the Sri Lankan family, you know, the speaking um, speaking to me about it because at, at first they weren't sure about me, you know, studying journalism either. So um, I guess it's just been a, a journey for me. Um yeah, I don't know. Was there a point where you was there a point where you decided like where was the point where you were like I'm really interested in food and food media is the place I want to sort of work towards because it's a competitive mm-hmm. it's a competitive game Very. food media. So Very. Yeah. It seems to me that in order to develop a career in it you have to work towards it. It's not like you can yeah. just be a writer and then you'll fall into food writing. 100%. Well, yeah. I don't know that you have to very few people go, I want to be a food writer. You have to be yes. a, a good writer and then have a love for yes. food on top of that. Mm. It seems like most people in food writing, like quite famous reviewers, um, like like Jay Rayner in the UK, started off as like writing about like homicides and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and then he just moved into yeah. food because he had a natural love for food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, of course. 100%. Um, I think I figured it out like maybe five years ago, which, yeah, okay. you know, isn't that long ago yeah. um, in the scheme of things. But um, I just remember reading a lot Obviously, I read a lot anyway, being a journalist and whatnot. Um, but reading a lot, especially looking at um, the Good Food Guide, that was something that I would read a lot because I'd always want to know where the best spots to eat were and whatnot. Um, and I was quite intrigued by the whole 
the whole industry and, and wanted to get into it. But I definitely found it really difficult to crack into. Mm. Um, and it took me having to start culinary to be able to crack into the industry. Okay. So I had to start my own thing. Right. You know, so that's where yeah. you first got your first opportunity. That was my big like break, that. so to speak. And that right. was just last year. Yeah, okay. And yeah. what were you doing like in that original stage, say five years ago, was mm. it that that journey of sort of, you know, writing blogs and trying to contribute free yeah. articles to things like, you know, Broadsheet Timeout, like those sorts of places and develop a portfolio? 100%. But yeah. even then I found trying to be a journalist and trying to even crack into that kind of thing and become a freelance journalist for publications like that was really hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you have to essentially know people or have some kind of existing network. Mm. Um, and that was definitely one of the motivating um, things for me to start culinary. Mm-hmm. Um, because I know that it's really hard for emerging writers, especially if you are of colour, to find your way in food media. Mm. Um, there aren't as many opportunities out there. Why do you think um, the fact that you're a person of colour, mm. you know, affected your ability to get a job? Like, where did that play a role? Is is mm. this just a part of the broader conversation around whiteness in our institutions? Mm. Yeah, 100%. I think um, – and there's a really good article out there which I encourage everyone to read um, – uh, written by Colin Ho and Nick Jordan um, for the ABC. It was published in 2018. Um, and in it, they kind of go into the nitty-gritty. In 2018, 81% of Good Food Guide and Gourmet Traveller reviewers were white. Um, when you look at the executive teams, um, I'm not so sure in this current day and age, but back then mm. they were all white. Um, and that really plays a part in in the kinds of people they're hiring. Um Obviously, I can't speak for now and I won't, but mm. um, I know that that was definitely an issue. And again, as I said, it, it really comes down to who you know a lot of the time as well and, and who you've networked with. Um, and that can be really difficult, um, especially when they're looking for a certain kind of person or um, even the way that they report on things it might not sit right with you as well. Um, and that can be another issue for POC as well, First Nations or black people too. Mm. Um, so a lot of it, yeah. I've, it's, it's interesting, my position at Culinary, I've been getting a lot of emails because I put a call out for um, writers, um, whether you're emerging, um, published or whatnot. Um, and I've had a lot of people getting in touch being like, I've found it so difficult to, to find a position to, to write for anyone because mm. I haven't had any work published because I can't get any work published and so it's like this catch-22. Is it even like the, the, the content of things you're writing? If there's no one, um, no one who shares a similar heritage and they, they mm. might not even be able to connect with what you're writing about. Um, to the point then that like if you're submitting articles and they're like I have no idea what she's talking about yeah and then dismiss it as, as not as not you know viable to publish is it, is it kind of even down to the content I mean yeah I, I'd be intrigued because I mean I'm not white myself so I can't really tell what <laughs> other people are thinking but you know as an editor myself what I look for is content that people are actually really passionate about talking about and that's my point of difference with culinary because I want people to explore their own cultures and champion those cultures i don't want someone who is of a different culture championing someone else's culture unless they're really invested in it Mm. um if that makes sense um and i think like historically looking at the kinds of places that you know are championed and whatnot they tend to be white owned or you know um the big institutions you know chris lucas's your andrew mcconnell's Mm. and whatnot um 
so to speak, the little guys aren't aren't heralded as much, and I think that's something that I'd love to to change if possible. Mm. I mean, you see it in the the, the good food guide, the restaurants that are listed. Yes, um, this is quite overwhelming uh, whiteness to to every to all of them, and exactly. even even a lot of the you know, Asian restaurants that are in the guide would have white owners exactly um yeah so many yeah it's quite glaring (laughs) in the result and for you to know that and and speak about that as well i mean it's it's proof you know it's Mm. proof in the pudding in say 2018 or you know this time period that we're talking about sort of maybe before you started culinary what was your view of the content of food media and you know diversity and representation in its content did you feel you know having the background that you do there wasn't enough for you to connect to someone of your experience yeah um it's yeah it was very like glaringly obvious that there was a huge lack of diversity and we've only seen that in the the past two years really that there's started to be an increase in diversity in these industries. Um, I think a huge thing, which also spurred me on with culinary, was the Black Lives Matter movement that peaked in June last year. Mm. Um, You know, well and truly into the pandemic, but that was also occurring. It was a lot. Um, Mm. But after that, I'm not sure if you guys have noticed as well, but I've definitely seen the conversation um, that, that... that started the conversation for people to start noticing that there is a huge lack of diversity in these industries. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah there's definitely um, I was quite aware that, and you see it on social media, on the news, and what people are talking about was conversations about representation, conversations about um, like things like black-owned businesses and supporting exactly. black-owned businesses and, and, and you know, First Nations people of colour voices was much more prominent, where, where it is a conversation you would have with your friends um, where before you probably wouldn't have really considered it um, yeah. to the point where I'd, like, I'd definitely try to spend money in, in you know, Aboriginal owned businesses. I use a lot of native ingredients yeah. and it makes sense that my, you know, my shampoo comes from an Aboriginal owned company mm-hmm. and it's making those little differences, which I think do add up. So I think that's definitely much more um, in people's minds um, exactly. to, of, of, of some, something to consider in almost everything you do. Mm. exactly yeah we're just starting that conversation now i just i hope that we keep going on with it and i hope that this leads to a lot more progress in the next you know 10 20 years or whatnot and especially for the future generations as well Mm. yeah and i mean this will segue nicely into culinary in a second but um you know there, there can only be positives in terms of empowering people of color to pursue a career in whether it be writing or being a chef or being a producer where there might have been a you know a a sentiment beforehand that you know someone like me might not be able to crack this industry because like i don't see anyone that looks like me around um seeing more of that in, in recent times always well, better when there's multiple voices <laughs> exactly. and multiple yeah. backgrounds and multiple yeah. ethnicities like exactly. like you've seen it like in history across the world exactly. like the more more different voices and ideas we have like food is better and tastier mm. exactly. so for minimal for that reason for more tasty food yeah. this is a conversation that should be had exactly i mean look at like why colonization happened in so many countries the spice trade mm. because people wanted the yeah. different spices from different countries. I just don't understand why we aren't involving those people in the conversation, <laughs> yeah. you know? It just baffles me. Mm. <laughs> um, I think you've already answered the question of... In a way, you've already answered the question of why did you want to start culinary? But uh, maybe 
tell us, take us back to sort of the, you know, the the first time you you were thinking about putting together a publication and your thought process when you were when you were like, well, how can I how can I do something important to me and 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 pursue a career in this industry? Um, I know I'll start a publication. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I I definitely didn't expect it to take off or anything. Yeah. Um, I just. I guess when I get really frustrated or angry at a situation, I like to do something about it. Mm. And so the whole thing that happened last year with the BLM movement really spurred me on to take action. Um, And that led to me creating Culinary just as a website and calling it a magazine. Um, But effectively it was just a website and it was just me writing (laughs) and interviewing people. Um, But I think branding it as a magazine really helped Mm -hmm. um, because then people were like, oh, it's a magazine. It's called a magazine. It's a magazine. Mm. And um, I'm like, yes, it is a magazine. And like we're releasing our first print issue soon, so which is exciting. Super exciting. Yeah. um, But yes, yeah, I think that just having that, confidence and that mentality and I believed in it from the start and then I just saw that it just started getting all of this attention people started hearing about it um it started to get a following and I just kept doing what I was doing and interviewing people and trying to get people on board and um you know soon I had a little team of volunteers and um yeah and I guess that's what created it was there any was a like how rigid was you know your ideas about the you know the issues and stuff that you'd cover the the people was it a, a sort of a this is just a broad spectrum place for um amplifying voices and and things or you know these are the types of things we specifically want to be covering and, yeah, and doing 100 percent. i think like what i've always told myself is i'm just going to take it as it comes and yeah. and see how i go um and that's what i've been doing but to start off with i just said i wanted submissions from or stories about first nations black and people of color because that's who i want to champion through the magazine um and you know whether that's an interview or a story um you know a personal account that's kind of what we're focusing on and on the flip side recipes Mm. um which i love to cook i love food Mm. um and i just think you know when you google a recipe or whatnot and this is a really interesting thing that i read about recently um say you're looking up a recipe for pad thai or something um most of the time, what will surface on Google, according to SEO, are lang- um, uh, English language recipes. Mm. Um, so you won't, and I'm not going to use the word authentic, but traditional, <laughs> um, traditional recipes, you know, by Thai people, um, mm. probably won't surface as high as something written by a white person. Mm. Um, and that can be quite frustrating um, because often with SEO, it's not going to surface things that were written in Thai. Um, Mm. So that's another thing to take into consideration. So what I try to do is have recipes written by people who are passionate, who are of that culture um, and then publish that in English. So then hopefully that will, you know, go higher up in SEO and we see more of that. Mm, That's a great idea. Because you do just like, like whenever I'm looking for recipes, it's, generally just a scroll of like i don't want that website i don't want that website i'm looking for something like for a restaurant so i I don't want it to be like take a cup of this and two cups of that (laughs) like i want want the grams for one or i want some like understanding about what i'm doing so it just takes like a long scroll of trying to find like which 
especially if like like I cook a lot of Indian at home mm. and I'm always trying to find like more deeper knowledge about that and that takes mm. a big scroll to find like a blog post or yeah. like something someone's written rather than like an SBS recipe. SBS are great, but yeah, 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 yeah. Like they're generally the basic home cook recipes. Yes, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Um, and that's just another thing we're trying to kind of work with, I suppose. Mm. Um, and it's it's cool because we have so many incredible chefs in not just not only Melbourne but the whole country, right? Mm. Um, some of the best executive chefs as well that um I know, like I'm trying to get them on board for. Well, we have got them on board for the first print issues, which I'm really exciting, excited for. Mm. Um, so we've got like John Rivera, who does Caratons or mm. Betis, and um, we've got Tom Serafian as well, and um, Harry Mungat. So I'm really excited because they're going to represent their own cuisine um, in a way as well, which is going to be so exciting. It's yeah, something awesome. you yeah. might not see at the fine diners that they've worked at and whatnot. So mm-hmm. it'll be really cool. Cool. Um, yeah. How, when you, when you sort of first started, was your sourcing of stories and, uh, you know, people and, and, and voices to feature in culinary, was, was that mostly through submissions or did you sort of have a, a list of things you wanted to cover yourself? And when it's, because I think it sort of might um, lead into the, you know, the question about Google and, and stuff like that. It's like, if you're trying to find a story, that isn't covered by mainstream food media that might be, you know, right down the list somewhere. Like it, it can be, can be difficult. You know, we all know that there's so many amazing stories out there, but I think specifically in this instance, they might be hard to find. Mm-hmm. Have you experienced that? And you know, how do how do you sort of how do you sort of find find stories that are that are not amplified um, outside of submissions? Mm, yeah, it's a really good call. Um, so. At the start, to be completely honest, we didn't get that many submissions. Um, just a handful, very small handful. Um, so a lot of it was just me. I like to think I've got my finger on the pulse yeah. in food media. So thinking of issues that I felt needed to be explored or people that deserve to be interviewed. Um, so, for example, um, Ross Magnet, um, who used to work at Rice Paper Scissors, okay. and now he like does a lot of pop-ups and things. Um, he's a fantastic Filipino chef. Mm. Um, Love rice, paper, scissors. Yeah, so good. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, interviewed him and um, he was he was a real pleasure. And I've actually noticed since we've interviewed him, looking at the website and the analytics and stuff and, and where our clicks are coming from, people are searching him on Google and we're surfacing yeah, at the okay, top. Cool. Um, and the same for Roisin from Etta, mm-hmm. um, which is really exciting. Um, yeah. And that didn't, come from me being like okay who's gonna surface on SEO it was just mm. just thinking of what who I felt should be interviewed who I whose story I wanted to hear mm. um and then commissioning commissioning those kinds of pieces to people as well yeah yeah that's great um because like a lot of the time these stories aren't like they aren't told in a in a long form yes, you know like a story interview and stuff and yeah. google likes content you know and yeah. I, I sort of like have found a similar thing exploring regions and producers mm. because you know i i might have found a you know an oyster farmer or a cheese maker on the south coast of new south wales and i've known that they've been there for years and i've always loved their products but no one's bothered to go down and interview them and and, exactly. and, and write it up and put it on a website so yeah. um I see myself, like I see my business surfacing as well, like when you search mm. for these sorts of people and stuff. And it's a great way to, like, I mean, you know, a part of, a part of what you're doing is building a, building a business and building an organization and increasing your, you know, your 
your reach yeah, and engagement for, engagement mm. for the better mm. of everything. So I think the, the ability to see those see those cracks and go like Google the way Google works means this happens to these people. Like being able to identify those cracks and then work out ways to actually solve them. That, that's mm. I mean that's amazing because there's a lot of times things that people just wouldn't. It wouldn't occur to them and they mm. wouldn't think about mm. um, until it's brought to your attention and yeah, then you're like exactly. ah. yeah 100%. I mean and that, that's kind of I guess that's one of the main points is getting people to think and to realize with these um, things that could be quite obvious on face value yeah. but you just don't think about yeah 100% I think like a big thing as well is like a lot of this has happened very organically for me mm. um, I haven't gone out there with like a capitalist mindset um so i've been quite fortunate i think but obviously there is a demand for this kind of knowledge as well mm. um that might change who knows um i guess because i'm i'm not a business woman i am <laughs> not too sure of what i'm doing yeah. but, <laughs> but you know it's working i'm um, mm. going with it and in future i would like to kind of create more of a business model and mm, yeah. and target things and whatnot. But I also kind of like that organic approach because then it means that you're really focusing on what's important, you know. Mm. I, was, I was thinking that. I was like, if you, if you like Googled um, like – black representation in food media you'd probably get like an article about a white per- by a white person about how it's a yeah, problem yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's like that's yeah. just, just like weirdly yeah. weirdly ironic that that's what would come up yeah. if you googled that did you notice that when you were starting um, culinary and i mean there was that really problematic article i don't know if you guys recall um is it the guardian i can't i can't remember the publication now um but it was about um how Asian this person wrote about like Asian fruit um and I think they were a Thai correspondent or something like that Mm. and she wrote about how a rambutan looked like a COVID COVID. (laughs) really and yeah how like (laughs) pungent and smelly durian was and just reported on it really badly um I remember the ABC approaching myself and Lee Tran Lam from um diversity and food media about that as well and they asked us for comment and it's just that kind of thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, someone that isn't of that culture that has no idea what they're talking about and just really rude. Yeah. Um, or, or really poor reporting or yes, or the lack yeah, of representation. That, um, that, that, that kind of um, the perceived exoticness. Yes. hundred percent. Of, of foreign yeah. ingredients. And it, it, we get it here and this is kind of where it springs up in a lot of stuff I cook. Like we did, um, we did a spot on Studio 10 I mean, it was just like a little kangaroo dish, like cooked quite raw with some other like little beach herbs. Mm. And the like bottom third part was like, will the will the presenters eat this wacky dish? Oh my God. And we were like, what? and then, then like what? there was a the whole thing of like, what other countries eat their coat of arms? Oh, and like, and, wow. we did, we, and like, see, we had no idea. We just went on to like, oh. on telly to do a cook. And then this is all it. And we're like, oh God, like, can we get away? The complete opposite of what you were trying to do at your restaurants. (laughs) Red meat. It's also really delicious. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But just the 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 perceived notion of, of, I mean, yeah, even even ingredients that grow in this country naturally. But yeah, like the things are, you know, weird or smelly or gross or whatever they are. And and then therefore there's no inherent value in them. Um, that's just such a, a dangerous, pervasive thing that we have 100%. in sort of Western culture, I guess. Yeah, hundred percent. And then it's interesting to see like the flow and effect of how native bush foods and just like you know, it's one percent. I think First Nations people that mm. actually produce their own native mm. bush foods, and that just 
it really baffles me. Yeah. Um, but then to see how it's trendy as well, mm. and and it's, oh, yeah, that's it's a whole uh, other kettle of fish. Well, yeah, we did a we did an hour and a half podcast about specifically this with mm. Dwayne Bannon Harrison up on the south coast. Yeah, which I'd, is an interesting one too. With Christian from Yerabinjan and Christian, we'd sort of say yeah, same conversations about. Um, about the food logistics and mm. yeah, how it's, it's, there's no money actually going from a lot of these ingredients and how important it is to to try and buy from Aboriginal and businesses or at least businesses where money's going back in the community. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and, and sort of fair pathway. So yeah, I mean, that's like, yeah, it's, it's an issue we have right in our country, in in, you know, in their country, um, mm. um, that's on our doorstep, that stuff is, is, that grows here and we have those problems. Yeah, exactly. Um, Mm. Exactly. Um, we were talking earlier about you know where where you're looking to go. Is currently what you're doing relatively Victorian centric? Yes, at the moment. Yeah. Um, but I would like to to expand. Yeah. Um, I guess I was just trying to use Melbourne as a base. Um, yeah. Just to kind of yeah. To, yeah. to use Melbourne base and then see how that goes and then expand gradually. Yeah, yeah for sure. Make it Australia wide. Yeah, because. There's there's some amazing um, cultural diversity in places like Darwin and up north and and, and really yeah. awesome. Uh, mm. I think I think the north of Australia is is a place that seems to be really overlooked in food 100%. media um, yeah. in terms of you know both indigenous food and multiculturalism. Yes. There's amazing histories up there, like a, a place like Broome with a you know. Japanese pearl diving history and and mm. things like that, mm. or yeah. you know, Dar- like apparently I haven't been I haven't been to Darwin yet, mm. but the apparently, laksa? yeah, they do really good laksa. Laksa, yeah. but apparently the farmers markets in Darwin is mm. is just I've heard that absolutely unbelievable. So, yeah. Um, yeah, are you sort of excited about excited about what's possible? Yeah, hundred percent. Because it's it's yeah, the the world is our oyster, really. Mm. Um, and Melbourne is just a, a way for me to start, only because it's it's quite difficult for me financially as well to look at other cities mm. right now. Yeah. Um, but I yes, definitely the end goal is mm. to incorporate, and and that's a great way to incorporate more First Nations people into the dialogue as well, which is incredibly important to me. Mm. Yeah. Um, tell us about moving from. You know, starting like being a journalist, looking at doing food writing, starting culinary, and now uh, writing for Time Out, mm. and you're an editor at Time Out here yes. in Melbourne. Uh, like, when did that opportunity come, and um, what's that that sort of you know short part of your career? You only started last year. Yeah, yeah. we started in September last year, yeah. um, so not very long ago at all. Mm. Um, and again, a lot of these opportunities arose from culinary. Um, so they found me um, via a, a friend, uh, Alex. She's part of Diversity in Food Media Australia and she'd heard of culinary, heard of me, um, and then she'd referred me to uh, editorial director Cass. Um, and then, yeah, that's kind of how it all began. Um, and they approached me and I was like, yes, I would love to do this. This is like a dream role, yes. Um, and yeah, it's been great. So I'm the food and drink editor for yeah. Time Out in Amazing. Melbourne. Yeah, so it's what a cool really job. Good. It's great. It's a it's a yeah a real dream job. Yeah. I'm very very fortunate. Yeah. Um, so it's been interesting balancing culinary and Time Out, um, but it's fun. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. yeah. Are you? What are some of the give us a, give us some of the sort of cool things you've been a part of? Obviously, the um, Melbourne Food and Wine Festival just wrapped up uh, yeah. their first. Sorry, the sorry, Pat, their first <laughs> edition of edition. this year's yeah. Melbourne Food That's and Wine right. Festival. Yes, there's more yeah. to come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, were you involved in that? Um, 
Yes, so I I did this. It was really cool. At the I almost forgot. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Pat put together this really cool um, with Visit Victoria's guide to like snacks across mm. Melbourne, which was really cool. Yeah, all the different. So it was like you know north east. East, mm. um, southwest, and so he commissioned um, a few of these snacks to a bunch of writers, including myself, um, which was really fun to work on. And I got to highlight um, some Sri Lankan places, which I yeah, were very dear to me. Mm. Um, and and yeah, it was really nice just seeing the diversity in the snacks that were chosen as well, all across the st- Victoria, and highlighting that you know a snack isn't just a sandwich. There's a lot more to it, mm. which mm. was really cool. Yeah, mm. that's awesome. That's fun. Is, is that obviously a, a goal as uh, editor of Time Out now to to maybe like right some of the wrongs you've seen going up to that, even with mm. you know hiring policy and, and mm. what gets written about? Yeah, 100%. In terms of content, it's something I'd like to see change. Um, I think Time Out's been quite nuanced though and, and um, it, it's I, I really admire it as a publication. Um but I think that we can all kind of learn and we can all kind of change a little bit and whatnot. Um, one thing that I was really, um, I guess, honoured that Time Out would let me do was write about the rickshaw bar. I don't know if you yeah. were. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that old chestnut. Yeah. Like a lot of people were talking about that. I, don't, I actually don't. I'm not Did, familiar with yeah, it. Yeah, right. Yeah. You're not in hospital. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, but like a lot, lot of like my friends in hospitality in Wollongong were talking about that. People were like, did you read about that bar? Yeah. <laughs> it was like, well, like just... So can you tell, for people who yes. don't know about it, Rishan, can you tell Yes, us? for sure. Oh, it's my favourite thing to talk about. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so I might give you a bit of backstory as well mm, as yeah, to yeah. what actually happened there. Um, so I receive a lot of press releases on a daily basis yeah. to my timeout inbox. Um, one such press release that caught my eye that I forwarded on to my team was um, about this place called Rickshaw Bar. Um, in Richmond, which is, as we discussed on Victoria Street, a very heavily like Vietnamese populated area, huge Vietnamese community. Um, they were opening a Vietnam War themed bar right in the heart of it. Um, and I just, when I saw the press release, the words that I read were like, there are going to be empty bullet shells strewn throughout the venue and, you know, real like orange um cognizant of like agent orange yeah um you know and like army style whatever get up and everything and it, it was like charred foods and just it just all just seemed just really off holy shit. yeah yeah like, really <laughs> off um and they were like you know it's it's reminiscent of 70s saigon we're like well there's only one thing that happened then yeah um and for south vietnamese people it's really awful thing that happened to them right um and not even just them that like the the war veterans and whatnot that would still suffer from ptsd Mm. to this day um so when i received that i was i just didn't understand if this was a real like how it was a real thing yeah it it sounds like parody it it does it really it really read like like parody photos i saw was like a like a pint glass with a like with like full with bullets and then like beer on top yeah like just mm. just like just strange like it was yeah. baffling when, like it Incredibly. could have been a chaser article yes 100 percent. um so i flagged that with the team and then i really fortunate my editor beck she um got in touch with the pr agency and said we don't approve of this this mm. is not something we will publish and also it's incredibly tone deaf you might want to revise this. Mm. And so we received a, a response from the PR agency saying um, the team will be sitting down. Um, they didn't realise that wasn't their intent and they will, you know, talk about it this week. 
I waited for two weeks and I was like eagerly watching their Instagram page and everything, um, waiting to hear back, heard nothing. And then I was like, okay, we've given them two weeks to make amends now. Mm. I think that's long enough. Um, so then I contacted my friend, um, Nyok Tran, who um, ran a, a, a great Vietnamese restaurant called Shop Bao Nyok mm-hmm. um, in Brunswick. And she has a real, she's an activist as well and she has a great following and she posted about it mm. to her followers and it just went viral it Mm. went crazy um and then all these people were you know lambasting them and bombarding their instagram profile all these comments like this is disgusting and Mm. whatnot and heaps of vietnamese people were as well so south vietnamese people um and yeah it it just went off and then um i spoke to my editorial director and and managing director and i said can i please finally write something about this now Mm. and they're like yes and then i got to write a very nuanced piece um unlike a few other publications um, that just like took screen grabs of Instagram shots and whatnot. Mm. I actually spoke to an academic that was North Vietnamese. I spoke to my friend who's a South South Vietnamese um, and yeah, and and got some quotes and some comments and just portrayed how offensive this is and and how ridiculous it is that venues can in 2021 still get away with this kind of stuff. Mm. It's Mm. disgusting. It brings up a really interesting issue which has been sort of covered recently in food media, which is, you know, white-owned ethnic restaurants. Yeah. Mm. Um, And I think we've got established like rickshaw bar is on the like huge, hugely offensive and disgusting end of the spectrum. (laughs) Um, And on the other end, we've got, white-owned ethnic restaurants like, for example, um, you know, David Thompson or someone like that who's been working, like who's mm. been, you know, infatuated with Thai food um, for, for 30 years or something like that and, mm. and, and you know, brought it in, into Australia and stuff. Um, and then also the work of people like Jock and Ben and you work a lot with Indigenous mm. ingredients and things like that as well. Like are we, are we in this really sort of tricky and challenging time where – People, white white business owners who, um, you know, have a passion for a certain type of ethnic cuisine, have to be really really careful about how they approach that, um, and how do we go about making sure people fit into an acceptable level of the spectrum? And there was a recent article about, it and I can't remember. Forgive it, me, I can't uh, remember Yvonne, the author. Yeah, Yvonne Lam, Yvonne. yeah, yeah. Gourmet Traveler. Yeah, about the some young guys. Yes, yeah. my Wilo fave. Yeah. South, um, yeah. Yes, it was a really great article. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely brought some interesting points. I think this, just going back to um, the rickshaw thing. I think mm. when you do get these um, these things happen, and especially on social media, and there's outrage, and people are sort of angry about it and about it. It needs some nuance, and needs some context, and it needs needs a deeper dive it into it to to yeah. kind of explain to people like this is why this is is wrong. Yes, because um, I think I think you like people of obviously have the right to be outraged and to voice that how they want but then someone there is the need I think for someone to come in and bring it bring it all together um, yeah. to explain to people because that's the only way that people are going to change if it's actually explained to them rather than people just getting angry from both sides or exactly. for, for a bit of anger as well we need a bit of everything but I think we definitely need that context 100% and even with culinary that's something that I really aim to do because that's why I try to channel my anger into quite like a productive way. Mm, Not to mm. say that that everyone has to do that. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. People of different 
different lived experiences. Um, but that's the way I like to do it is to bring facts into it, to bring a nuanced view into it and show logically how it's wrong, you know, to people that might not otherwise understand. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, so where do you see it in terms yeah. of like how do we how do we navigate these waters? Mm. Because I think that like, um, you know, the amplification of indigenous food and subsequently an understanding of indigenous food history here in Australia via Jock and Ben and people like that is a positive thing. Mm. Um, you know, how do we how do we navigate these we, waters? Jock got a lot of shit recently. Yes. Well, yeah. he has. With the um, database. Yeah, I mean, wrongly for a lot of it, I think. Yeah. Um, but there were some First Nations people who, who were quite angry with him as well and he's yeah. done a lot and, tr- and always tried to do it the right way from, from what I know. So yeah. it's it's... It'll be interesting rope. to see how that database pans out, though. Yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, Is yeah, that still sort of... No, it's been completely... It, yeah, he over. had a whole chat about it as yeah, well. Yeah, okay. yeah, which he did... Um, yeah, recorded like a Facebook Live about it. Yeah, it was um, yeah, part of... But uh, yeah. it's with a, um Aboriginal group and it's basically up to them to do with it what they want, mm. which was the, intent, the, yeah. the, the purpose of stuff. I think a lot of it is just it took a long time. Mm. Yeah, yeah um, and certain groups can do with it what they will you know yeah. and there's also censored information like very yeah. sensitive information in there yeah. yeah there's like a lot of stuff um, that um local a lot of red tape won't, won't don't want that information out yeah, yeah. Um, like yeah. like christian said he's like yeah there's some stuff like that you'll never hear of yeah like, like yes. to me yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah that's fair <laughs> yeah i think the whole thing was that it was being handled by a white person mm. but i guess it's a catch-22 because he had the power to sort of get that those yeah. wheels in motion. Mm. Um, I think with going back to what you said, I think the biggest thing is, is it cultural appropriation? Yes. Or is it cultural appreciation? Mm. And there's a really fine line between the two. And yeah. sometimes it can be a grey area. Um, the way I see it personally is like, for example, someone like Fuchsia Dunlop, for example, okay. white woman who has written extensively about Chinese cuisine, namely Sichuan mm. cuisine. Um she was what, the first person to first Westerner to study at the I think it was the Sichuan Institute in Chengdu, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's appreciation because she's gone out there, so she's the done the work, in. she's taken the time to actually connect with the culture and the people, and make sure it's okay with them, um, and then sort of bring it to the Western world, so to speak, but introduce it, um, but in a way that isn't ridding people of their culture in a way that she's claiming ownership of it mm, um mm. and i think that's appreciation and you know cultural appropriation is you know your rickshaw bars and mm. and 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 white owners that fail to recognize the culture that they're claiming to herald mm. in their or the the cuisine that they're claiming to herald mm. um I, another thing i think is like involving someone of that actual culture in the journey you mm-hmm. know i don't see why it's so hard if you're so passionate about it you should be passionate about the people as well mm-hmm. that's just my opinion yeah mm-hmm. like the, the some young guys thing i think was was an interesting one because you, you don't feel like there was any malicious intent behind there because it, it was down to their branding really stupid as yeah. <laughs> yeah like stupidity and yeah. it, i mean and for white people already having these conversations recently and they've been five six years so i mean mm-hmm. it wasn't a problem mm-hmm. but i think it's about like moving with the times like um yeah. example is like lobo was lobo plantation run bar in sydney it changed their name a year or two ago just mm. to lobo because mm. they realized mm. that the implications of plantation and like yes. i think that's just a really good 
smart like oh yeah shit we've done something wrong here let's yeah. let's, let's, let's correct that 100 percent, mm. and that's the thing like you can be corrected on something you might not realize that but you not realizing that something offends someone else is a privilege in itself and mm. it's really important to recognize that and reconcile it mm. and i think the biggest thing you can do is in that position of privilege understand that you're hurting someone else take a moment you know do your research mm. and then if it is actually offensive get rid of it it's not mm-hmm. that hard and i think with some young guys they were given the opportunity by gourmet traveler in yvonne lamb to to make comments to change things and they were just really arrogant about it mm. um and very forthright and i think that's that is like the worst case of privilege you know um mm. that's not what you should do and if you're going to do that then you're showing your true colors mm. that's, that's how i feel about it mm. yeah i think it you may you it's an interesting point about lobo plantation and just in general about um any any business that's you know serving ethnic cuisine a wide-owned business serving serving ethnic cuisine to take stock of where they're at and mm-hmm. be on the front foot in terms of you know their identity and and how that fits in with the food and the culture that that they're showing through their food and making changes where mm-hmm. necessary um, seeking information, seeking feedback, talking with people in food media and things like mm. that, and ensuring that y- yeah, like you know, if you're offending people, and mm. you might need to be active about seeking out whether or not you know to find out whether or not you actually are, but are yeah, active and on the front foot. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it's something that I've thought a lot about with being passionate about native in native Australian ingredients. Um, and that leading to wanting to learn and, and find out more about Aboriginal culture and history, um, and then sort of having that on my menus of making just one talking to First Nations people and being like, "What do you think of this? Like, is this okay? Like, is this cool?" Um, and then just just make sure you're doing the reading and just like like I, remember I spent like a long time on any like Instagram post before, making sure I'm spelling things right or I'm getting the you know, capitalization in the right place and, and all these things. And I think it's just you just have to. You just have to worry about it a little bit, yeah. and then that hopefully that will help you find you know the the best way of doing it or stop you from doing something yeah. that that might be a step too far. Yeah, one hundred percent. And like another thing that you can that we can all actively do. Um, have you heard of pay the rent, for example? Mm, yeah. Yeah. So we can all actively pay the rent um, and and provide money to a lot of these First Nations organisations um, because at the end of the day we are we're all settlers on this land, mm, you know, and yeah. we're all. We're all taking up their um, their space, and I think that's the least we can do. So that's another thing. But I really respect that, and I think that should be the standard, mm. you know. And mm. and another thing is like names. Um, so again, going back to Avon's article, it was all about problematic restaurant names and and what's in a name effectively, and mm. that's something that you know First Nations Black and people of color have dealt with their entire lives. Mm. Um, people either mispronouncing or making fun of your name and. Yeah. The mockery of a name itself is something that, you know, sometimes you might not do it intentionally, but if you misspell a name, it can it can mm. really hurt the other person, you know? Mm. And that's another thing. Yeah. yeah. Like the local paper got my name wrong once and I was like... <laughs> and I was like, fuck, imagine having that like your whole life. Yeah. Like anytime yeah, yeah. anyone tries to spell your <laughs> name. And you've got an easy name to mine spell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I was even more confused. Was like, <laughs> I think it was that weird. I don't think anyone's ever gotten my name right on the first pass. Yeah, I've got yeah. a double barrel hyphenated surname. I just use the first one. But oh, yeah, it's I, difficult. I do too. Um, oh, really? I do too. Yeah, right. Mine's 
in classic Sri Lankan fashion, mm. very long. Can um, you tell us? What's yes, it? Yeah. I can. I can. <laughs> Exclusive. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, Senavaratna okay. Appa. So I just go by the Appa yeah, or Epa, yeah. whatever yeah. you call it. Yeah. Damn it, I pronounced it wrong at the start. Oh. Well. No, but everyone says Epa and I'm fine with it. I don't mind it. I said Epa yeah. because Victor said Epa yesterday no, when we were fine. talking Ipa's about it. Epa's fine, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Interesting, like as we, you know, continue to talk about indigenous culture and indigenous cuisine, um, you know, there isn't a there isn't a history of indigenous restaurants in Australia in the same way that there are other, you know, migrant migrant owned restaurants and you know Vietnamese food culture or Sri Lankan mm. food culture or Chinese food culture here in Australia, mm. um, because it's a different history. Mm. Um, how and and we've spoken with uh, you know indigenous people pushing in terms of food and ideas and produce and those sorts of issues and things, but I feel like there's like quite a glaring gap in terms of representation in restaurants. Mm. Is that something you're exploring with culinary and um, you know there's some people that you've spoken to and um, mm. talked to short stories? Mm, yeah, um, Sam May was. The first person okay. that I um, interviewed for culinary because I wanted it in particular to be a First Nations person because, again, going back to everything that I just said. Yeah. Um, so I was very yeah honoured to be able to interview him. He had worked for Charcoal Lane mm-hmm. um, and I think after culinary he went on to kind of do a few different things and host classes and stuff like that. Um, but his experience was not what I thought it would be. Um, I think when you hear of... When, <laughs> I'm trying to say it in a proper way. Mm. Um, some of the restaurants he had worked for, I thought were great institutions, especially for First Nations people. Um, it didn't turn out to be that way from what he said. Mm. Um, and that was quite eye-opening for me. Um, and it's sad because, there, as you mentioned, there aren't many First Nations at least own restaurants or First Nations um, championing restaurants. And that's a real issue. But I guess that's obviously rife in history and and, and opportunity as well, lack of opportunity. Um, but Sam May was a real pleasure to chat to and it was nice to see how he was trying to work with First Nations like Bush Foods and whatnot. Um, and, and yeah, he, he taught me a lot. Yeah. So cool. that was one of the first people that I interviewed. Nice. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, it's, I mean, there is hardly any indigenous chefs out there with yeah. the high profiles there's, yeah. there's a couple of Mabu Mabu um, cafe and yes, see Dwayne snorty, gets yeah. just a lot of um, lots of publicity for what he does um, in, in in the south coast but I mean but then there's it, it's such a it's such a strange thing and this has always been a strange thing for me is in this country um, there's more uh, Asian Australian chefs than there are chefs of the people from this land yes. and that, that's just quite a baffling thing on the face of it um, I can't imagine there's a lot like well, maybe in, in America with, with sort of Native American uh, mm. people it might be the only country that has a kind of um, allegory to that but yeah so it, it, there is a, a massive need for especially when you know native ingredients are so popular across all the yeah. top restaurants in the country we uh, desperately need uh, more voices highlighted, more yeah. more chefs put forward, and the, uh, the Indigenous Culinary Association here um, are really pushing for that, and I re- really love their goals, and it's um, something yeah. we've uh, we've wanted to get involved in for quite a while. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, there's such a massive need for for more 
uh, Aboriginal people in the culinary world 100%. right now. I mean, like, it doesn't help that the government did try to commit a genocide against yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that will really <laughs> set back your, yeah. <laughs> your, your, your goal of wanting to be a chef. Right? Yeah, exactly. But, like, hopefully we can see more First Nations people actually be involved in the dialogue of their own food. Mm. Mm. I really hope so. Mm. Um, we just need to give them the power to do that. Yeah, mm. yeah. That's where culinary comes in, as long as, so, as as well yeah. as a lot of other publications. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. I certainly hope that we can um, give them the platform yeah. that they deserve. Amazing. Yeah, cool. Um, we'll probably start wrapping up. Rishani, is there anything else you wanted to touch on or talk about? Um, how can people mm. get to culinary? Yeah, oh, sure, so, <laughs> bit of a promo, we're, um, so yeah, we're in the process of making our first print issue, which is very exciting, yeah, um, that is currently available for pre-order via our website, everyone, what's um, the website, so it's www.culinary.com, but culinary is a pun, so it's spelt differently, so yeah. it's C-O-L-O-U-R-N-A-R-Y, yep. um, yeah, so you can find it there, um, otherwise we will host like future events and whatnot, um, we're hosting a, a second fundraiser dinner actually in a few weeks' time. That's sold out, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and if anyone wants to contribute at all, please get in touch. Um, I think we're good for the first print issue, but you know, for ongoing ones and mm. for the website, definitely looking for like writers, photographers, illustrators, um, or chefs for recipes. Um, yeah, I guess that's that's, that's great. That's that. Exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah, just to reiterate with people out there, uh, I'm, I'm going to guess, Rishani, that you've spent a lot of unpaid hours working <laughs> on culinary. Yes. And <laughs> in order for uh, something as important and a publication like this to have longevity, uh, it eventually, you know, needs to be worth, like, well, it's, it's going to be worth your time, but um, it needs to provide for you as well. So buying and pre-ordering um, print issues and supporting online and continuing to follow and support publications like this is super, super yeah, important. 100%. And we're also accepting donations as well. Yes. If that's something people are <laughs> able to do. Mm. Um, but another thing I think is really important is to to be really wary of where you're ingesting your media from. Um, and I think a big part of that is, you know, if you want to hear the opinions of First Nations Black or people of colour, surround them, surround yourselves with mm. them. Um, so, you know, Instagram is a great tool for this. There's mm. plenty of people out there. Mm. Um and, you know, Gourmet Traveller is um, doing really well with Yvonne, who's a digital editor. She's writing a lot of great things at the moment. Um, and then, like, other people I could shout out is Jess Ho. She used to be the food and drink editor um, for Melbourne, Time Out Magazine Melbourne. And she has a newsletter that she does that you can subscribe to. Um, and then there's also, like, little community groups like the Entrepreneurs. They're um, a Filipina, like, activist kind of group. They're, they're great advocates for their culture. Um and there's so many other people that I've probably missed, but um, yeah. Oh, Chef Diversity in food media as yes, well. Diversity in food media, yes. Lee Tran Lam is amazing. Um, Nick Jordan as well. Um, but there's there's just so many so many great people out there um, that we can all listen to and, and take note from. Awesome. So yeah. Cool, yeah, Rishani. Yeah. Thank you so thank much you. for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.
Hello, dear listeners. Steph here. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Food Fight. If you want to get in touch with us, it's at The Food Fight Podcast on Instagram or The Food Fight Podcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you and we want to talk to you. Please leave us a five star review on iTunes. That really helps. If you want to hit me up, it's quicksandfood.com or at quicksandfood on Instagram. And if you want to get in touch with Simon, it's Simon underscore Evans underscore TBD on Instagram. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you again with another episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 